From third-generation real estate attorney and New York Press Club award-winning podcaster, Hal Coopersmith, this is Broker's Angle. Welcome to Broker's Angle. I'm Hal Coopersmith. In this episode, we talk a little bit about everything that's going on in the world of commercial real estate due to COVID-19. And our 30-minute or less interview is with Josh Berger of Norman Barbro and Company. Josh heads up broker training at Norman Barbro and shares many pearls of wisdom, including this. I want to hear what they have to say, because I also think that it's important to not follow blindly, but to be able to think on your feet and to be able to react and respond in a way that's natural to you. Because at the end of the day, nobody's hiring a company to do their lease. They're hiring a broker that works for that company. And if you don't know how to be yourself or how to react in a way that's true to you and genuine to you, it's going to come across that way. And I don't think that's a helpful way. I think genuineness and communication are really crucial in, in being a good broker and communicating and negotiating an effective deal. But first, Broker's Angle is sponsored by the law firm of Coopersmith & Coopersmith, a boutique real estate law firm practicing in commercial and residential real estate for over 87 years. This, of course, is attorney advertising, so we are obligated to say prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. And normally we would have my partner Richard chime in here, but we've been separated during quarantine, and that's a segue to our current situation. In the world of commercial real estate, everyone can agree that it is a mess out there, and no one can predict what this means for the long-term future of real estate. Personally, I am optimistic for the future of New York City, and that we have an environment that cannot be replicated anywhere else. But in the immediate term, companies will need to figure out what to do about their leases, both for retail and office space. At Coopersmith & Coopersmith, we've been offering complimentary 15-minute strategy sessions because each situation is different. Whether it is determining how to put PPP funds to work, immediate reductions or abatements in rent, or determining how to exit a space, We've been working with landlords and tenants on how to navigate the situation. So if you have a client with a question about the current landscape, please feel free to reach out and we will put our contact information in the show notes. So with that, let's go to our interview with Josh Berger. you've listened to past episodes and you said that they were a little bit boring no offense to to me or any of the guests but you wanted to spice things up a little bit a little bit a little bit brokerage can be a pretty dull situation when you're looking at the various intricacies of a lease or how to approach things or what what a building is worth or how to get to the certain economics and i i like the human side of brokerage i really like the interaction with the people the different situations the unique angles and uh i feel like sometimes that's a little bit glanced over when people are so focused on the economics, which is obviously important, but there's a huge human element that I feel is ignored. And so how have you focused on the human element in your business? Sure. So for me, I try to surround myself with, with good people who are honest people and work with CEOs who respect their teams and respect the people that they work with. It enables a clear line of communication that's really helpful in terms of establishing and creating a strategy that we can execute that really affects the business. But at the end of the day, the business is made up of people. So if you don't take that into consideration, all the business strategy could go out the window. And I have to imagine, Josh, that some people are, are listening to this and saying, well, I want to work with the wonderful people too, but I 
want some form of business. How do you get to the good people and and how have you made the choices to filter out the people that you don't want to work with? It's a good question. And I think when you're starting out in brokerage, you have obviously less of an opportunity to be picky. When I first started in the business, it was knocking on doors, cold calling and things like that. And at that point in my career, I had no opportunity to choose who my clients are or were rather. Coming from an uh, uh, immigrant parents, I didn't grow up with uh, people who ran businesses or anything like that. So I had to make my, make it on my own. Over time, that ended up being a big blessing because you develop strong relationships with people. And then you start to realize, hey, I want to spend time with these people. I don't want to spend time with those people. Thankfully, when you do good work, people refer you business and like-minded people tend to travel in similar circles. And so I've been lucky enough to have a number of clients who've referred me to better and better people. And you have to be willing at a certain point to walk away if someone does not fit in that category in your mind or in in practice. So there's definitely been some business that I've quote unquote lost, but to me, balance is really important. And being that you're interacting with a client consistently for a very long period of time, given the work, most people are addressing their lease between 12 and 25 months before expiration in this, generally in the size range that I work with, there's a lot of time you spend with those people. And if you don't have an opportunity to connect with them in a real way, it can be really exhausting and emotionally draining. And, um, you know, I think mental health is something that's very important. And so to be able to be with people who you enjoy spending time with, like I am now, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different opportunity than being forced to just work for the money. What's been a situation where you walked away? Ooh, situation where I walked away happened actually probably a couple of months ago. It was actually through a referral and walking away is an art in and of itself and doing it respectfully because you don't want to burn a relationship. And I was introduced to somebody and they said, well, I met with this broker and I met with that broker and whoever gives me the best number, whoever cuts their commission the lowest is going to be the one that I go with. And I said, I understand what you're saying, but I also have value for my own time. And I'm not going to do a race to the bottom. I know what my time is worth. I appreciate the opportunity, but it's not going to be for me. Now, it didn't necessarily have to do just with the money. It had to do with the aggressive approach of the person saying, do it my way or the highway. I'm about collaboration. I'm about taking ego out of it. Now, do all CEOs have somewhat of an ego to them? Absolutely. And founders and owners of companies, absolutely. But the question is, can they speak with respect and do they treat other people with respect? That's a very big part of it for me. There are going to be hiccups in any deal. That's the name of the game. I need to be able to work with someone who I can communicate with in a clear way and say, hey, here are the pros, here are the cons, here's what we need to address and not have them jump down my throat and start negotiating with me. We, we work as a team. I don't want to be negotiating with you and then negotiating with the other side. And then how did you gracefully exit? I gracefully exited by saying, I really appreciate the opportunity. I don't think this is going to be the right fit. Given, given the fact that we might just not be a good personality fit, I can certainly recommend some other people who might be helpful. But I think for this particular situation, it could get a little contentious. And that's not something that I think is beneficial for either side. And what attracted you to the business? And how did you find your way into commercial leasing? It's a great, it's a great question. And uh, I really had no interest in real estate whatsoever when I was in college. I studied marketing and business administration. And I was interviewing at jobs at, in various marketing companies. And this was in 2008-9, which was not the best time in, in terms of economics, in terms of the economy, rather. Or real estate. Or real estate or, or anything. Yeah. You know, it was, it, was a, it was a really tough time. And so I was interviewing at all these marketing places. And they kept saying, you could make $120,000 a year. And while to a college student, that might sound like a lot of money, I had certain aspirations for myself. And I said, if I want to raise a family in the tri-state area and, and live a comfortable life, it just didn't seem like a lot of money. And so I kind of hit a dead end. And one of my friends, his brother was working for Norman, Norman Bobber, the president of, of the company and the namesake. He said, why don't you go talk to Norman? I said, listen, I don't know anything about real estate. I'll go talk to him though. So I went to talk to Norman and Norman was very honest with me up front. 
And that's one of the things I really liked and like about him. He said to me, you're not going to make money for a whole year. Can you afford that? I said, no, I, I, I can't. He said, but if you can make it through the first year and you learn and you learn and you grow, the sky's the limit. So I said, okay. For some reason, that was intriguing to me, the, the limitless potential. So I called my parents and I said to them, hey, and this, don't forget, side note, um, they pay, paid for my college and put me through college completely. So hearing that I was considering a full, full commission job, they were not happy to say the least. Not happy, it's still supportive. And so what I ended up doing is I ended up moving into their guest room in Teaneck, New Jersey, and they covered my tremendous expenses of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a New Jersey Transit bus ticket, and I grinded for a year. And I was in the office from 7 a.m., left at 8 p.m., and every deal that I worked on fell apart, every single one. And so it was very, very challenging, and every two months I would walk into Norman's office. I don't understand. What am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? He said, nothing. Just keep going. Every deal that you lose, you're going to learn something from. Fast forward to 2010, and I closed 11 deals and won an award in the company for the most deals closed in one year. And so since then, it's been it's been better and better. And thankfully, I've had a really nice opportunity to grow within the company. Uh, now I'm, I'm taking I've taken on a much larger role in terms of interviewing and bringing on brokers. I run a broker development program, and it's been it's been great. And uh, I feel very lucky to have a mentor that really cares about the tenants and not having any conflict of interest in terms of representing any landlords, but also who's someone who owns real estate himself, so we can understand how owners look at real estate um, and also his charitable side. Well, I certainly want to get to the broker training program, but. Uh, you certainly brought up a lot. And I want to know, what did you learn from those deals that were falling apart? And how did you get through that? Sure. So a lot of the, the stuff that I learned was how and when to bring things up in a negotiation, right? So many times I thought, man, I'm so close on this deal. And the only thing that's left to do is security deposit. Now, security deposit makes or breaks a deal. And I didn't know that until you know a little bit later on after a few deals that fell apart, fell apart because of security. So the way that I learned to kind of combat that is that I brought it up in, up front, always with my clients. I would sit down with them and I would say, before we put an offer in, it's important to understand that the landlord is only going to be evaluating this deal based on your financial strength. If we cannot put that forward and come to an agreement on what makes sense for a security deposit, we're not going to be able to make a deal. So to take a look at these at these companies' financials before the process begins instead of waiting till the end when the landlord brings it up to me. So that's one thing. Another thing, let's say, for example, uh, a sublet clause, right? So every lease has a, has a sublet clause. And I thought to myself, oh, whatever, as long as they have a right to sublease, it's fine. Until you go through a situation where you're representing the subtenant, potential subtenant, and you get to uh, subleases, you negotiate the whole sublease, you sign it, you know, after they hire you, obviously, to negotiate the sublease document. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> I'm very into the sublease clauses, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so this relates strictly to the consent period. Sometimes a landlord will put that they have a 60 or 90 day consent period, which to a layman might seem like, oh, it's just a couple months, right? But in reality, if you're a CEO of a company, you've now signed a sublease that you've gotten everything done, and you need to sit holding the bag for 60 days until an overlandlord gives you consent, that can have significant impact on your business. Yeah, you certainly lose the deal. That's and from a lease standpoint, that's certainly something that we look at if brokers aren't on the ball like you. Right. And and, and that's why it's so important, obviously, for brokers to have partners on, on the law side who can, who can look at these things. Because I know a lot of brokers who don't feel that it's their duty to do this part of the deal. They say, well, the attorney's going to do it. Well, in that case, that's fine. Just make sure you have a good attorney. Otherwise, can things slip through the cracks or fall by the wayside. Um, and just in my experience with consent, landlords, most landlords will take every single day of their 30 days. I had a situation last year, not last year, it's probably four years ago, where we had a great relationship with the landlord, major REIT, and they said to us, we're not recapturing, we're not recapturing, we're not recapturing. On day 29, in hour 23 of 24 hours, they recaptured the space. 
And they called us. They said, we're so sorry, but we got a tenant who wants to take the whole building. So recapture and consent period are absolutely crucial. Well, yeah, that's certainly the time to, to market the space. And that's why that matters. And you certainly mentioned that you took a lot of lumps in the beginning. Now you're starting this broker training program. What have you learned that you're incorporating to the broker training program? And what does that that mean for for you and your company? Sure. So uh, a lot of what I talk about with the younger brokers or the newer brokers is the importance of communication clearly and and also about um, looking at every angle of the deal. It's, it's easy to kind of say, hey, this is the base rent, but there are a lot of other things that can really affect a deal. And so what I make sure that they go through is understanding the business implications of the various parts of a deal and that the most leverage you have is at the beginning of a deal. And if you don't use that opportunity, you could end up trying to renegotiate later on, which is not a great look. Also, just to help them understand order of operations from when you present a, a space to a tenant through showing them negotiating getting the lease done, so on and so forth, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. And the devil is in the details. So if you don't understand what that process is and how to do it properly, it can really be challenging. Some of the other things that we touch on are how to handle objections, right? How to negotiate properly. We do a lot of role playing, right? I'm, I'm not one to sit there and pontificate about how this is the right way to do things. First of all, any way that I've learned has been through my experience, but also through mentors and teachers and other brokers that I've had interactions with that I've learned from. So I want to hear what they have to say. Because I also think that it's important to not follow blindly, but to be able to think on your feet and to be able to react and respond in a way that's natural to you. Because at the end of the day, nobody's hiring a company to do their lease. They're hiring a broker that works for that company. And if you don't know how to be yourself or how to react in a way that's true to you and genuine to you, it's going to come across that way. And I don't think that's a helpful way. I think genuineness and communication are really crucial in, in being a good broker and communicating and negotiating an effective deal. What are some common mistakes that brokers are making? Common mistakes that brokers make, let's say either being too pushy or not pushy enough, you know, where a broker kind of is, is too brisk or curt with their communication because they want to get something done, not understanding that the person that they're communicating with on the other side has their own things to deal with. And I'll give you an example. You're waiting to hear back from HR on something to do with headcount or something to do with space layout as you're negotiating, right? Whether it comes to a test fit or whatever it might be in terms of laying out the space. And it's been now been two weeks since you heard back from HR and you're getting really frustrated. So a mistake could be sending a very strongly worded email saying, it's been two weeks, I need to get this done. If we don't get this done, we're going to lose the deal, right? Now, while that gets the information across, it's not helpful in understanding that this person in HR might have been on vacation for a week. They may have had a huge hiring spree which a lot of times we deal with because we help companies when they're expanding and they don't have, they haven't had time to deal with it. So a more effective way to kind of frame that would be, I know that we're, we're all trying to get this done in a timely manner. Have you had a chance to look at the headcount yet? Let's see if we can schedule a call for X or Y, present two times so that we can move forward. Present a solution, not just a problem. In addition to training brokers, how do you organize yourself to be successful? A big part of for, for me, it has to do with discipline with schedule. I do have a lot going on in my life because outside of brokerage, I also, I box, paint, I put together charity art shows and all these different things. And people often say to me, how do you have time to do everything? And the answer is that I'm extremely disciplined and rigid when it comes to my schedule. Every morning when I walk in, I'm in the office at 7.30 and I make a list of everything that I have to do. I number and letter everything by category. And then I literally take a, a printout of a, of a daily calendar that's cut out into 15 minute segments. And I use a bread pencil and I, and I fill it in. So I make sure that I'm getting everything done in that time. So that, that provides me a huge, puts my mind at ease, knowing that I don't have to worry about things that I need to get done, because I know that there's a system that I can rely on that I've put in place. So that really helps me get everything done in a way that I know is getting done and know that I'm serving my clients well and not letting anything slip through the cracks. 
I don't know if that answered your question. But. It certainly did. I definitely want that system. Yeah. You mentioned boxing. Have you ever had to use boxing physically in real estate? So obviously, <laughs> not not quite, not quite. But uh, there are other ways that I, I have seen certain similarities in. Well, I mean, that's I think one of the nice things about having a well-rounded perspective and, and doing a lot of different types of things is that I've noticed uh, certain themes that are true whether it be through art or boxing or music or, or brokerage. Um, one of the things we talked about already, which was discipline, but in terms of um, there are a few different elements. One, let's call it from a philosophical angle, let's call it alignment, right? And so if you're boxing, for those of us who don't box, I'll explain your feet and your hands and your shoulders and your hips and your breathing all need to go in unison. If you can't figure out how to, how to align those things, it's going to be very challenging to create a strategy that you can create and then execute on a game plan on how to look at your opponent's weaknesses and strengths and say, how do I do this, right? So it's the same thing with, with brokerage in terms of being aligned, right? If you can't align, you, you lay, even just say, let's say the client side where you have CEO, a CTO, HR, and then you have the other side of the deal, the broker, the landlord, and then you have architects, engineers, and everyone. If you can't create alignment and have a, have a goal altogether, you can't create a strategy that's, that's going to be effective. And with art, it's, a, it's the same thing. If you're not aligned in terms of your concept and how you want to execute that concept in a, re, in a real way, it's going to be challenging to bring that idea into reality, which, again, what is an idea if it's not brought into reality, right? It's just this, this conceptual thing. And you mentioned the art that you do. I looked up some of it. You're very much against social media. Yeah. So when I first started creating art, it was a big it was a big push into anti-social media because I, I really genuinely feel that if people solely interact with their with their community, with their friends through social media, it creates a lack of human connection. At the end of the day, we're human beings are tribal beings, right? And if you don't spend time with people, if you don't share that energy, uh, you become cut off. And and that's when, you know, depression seeks in, uh, seeps in rather. And there are different elements that can really become harmful uh, to, to one's psyche. There was, a, there was a stencil that I was working with that's called, that said, stop selfies, right? And it's not a, a hatred against selfies. It's not saying, hey, don't, don't take a picture of yourself. What it is, is more if you're in an environment with your people, and with your friends, or with your family, don't remove yourself in order to take that picture, right? Enjoy what you're around, enjoy what, you, what you're with. Yeah, I had I had a pretty, I did an art show a couple of years ago to benefit uh, the Lower East Side Girls Club, and I had a pretty dark installation. Uh, it was called Selfie Suicide. It was a character that was wrapped in caution tape and was committing suicide and taking a selfie with it. And it was kind of a little bit saying, you know, if we keep removing ourselves from reality and if we keep in- interacting in this non-human way, the last thing that people will see will be you taking a selfie of you taking your own life. And it's really an unhealthy and uh, not a beneficial way, in my opinion, to interact with reality. Well, as long as you're not against podcasts, we can be friends. About that. (laughs) Well, you're on one right now, I have to say that. But you certainly do have perspectives on brokers using media and social media. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to, to sharing ideas or, or, to, or to helping people, I'm, I'm absolutely for social media. Um, I think there are benefits. The challenge is when it becomes the thing that takes over and it becomes the only thing. A platform like this where you know, you're providing helpful information to brokers or CEOs or, or companies or whatever it might be, I think that's great. And I think that if that communication is effective and if the people that are talking are experts on a, on a subject matter, it can be really helpful and really um, beneficial to a lot of people. How can brokers use social media more effectively, in your opinion, and what mistakes are brokers make? Number one is over over communicating on social media. People are just so overwhelmed with information that if you find yourself that yourself that you're a broker and you're posting on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or whatever six, eight times, ten times a week, it gets overwhelming. And I think people just 
become bombarded with information. And what the goal is, is to be like, hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm here. But when it's too much, I can tell you personally, when that happens, I just mute or hide those people because it's just absolutely too much. Um, another mistake is when they only use it for marketing purposes, right? When they're just like, hey, I'm representing this sublease or I'm representing this building. Come look at my space, right? That's not really what people want to see in social media. I think people want to see content that's relevant to them and that's helpful. So, you know, for me, I'll, I'll post things that relate to sales, how you can be more effective in sales or how I've had more success in sales. I tend to tend to also enjoy doing, I do like a weekly quote. So another way that I'm organized is I every Monday morning, I have a whiteboard and I go through and I write all my deals that I'm working on. I color code them by where they are in their process. And I, and I write all the things that I need, I need to get done that week for those deals. And I always put a quote there at the, at the top of the board. This month, this, sorry, this week, the quote that I had up there is a quote that I found really relevant, and it's from Washington Irving. Little minds are tamed and subdued by misfortune, but great minds rise above them, right? And so that's something that by me sharing, I feel that could be inspirational to people who might be facing a challenge this week. And I know that we all face our challenges, you know, and this is one of the biggest fallacies, I think, of quote-unquote success, is people look at somebody who's had some success and say, they've made it, this is successful. Uh, What they don't realize is that this is a constant focus and a constant battle where you need to consciously be aware of of what it takes to be successful and you wake up every day and you need to make that decision nobody wakes up who's successful and says okay now i made it and it's done no it's that battle and it's that fight and it's that vigor that makes you successful and defining what it means to be successful absolutely well that's that's also super important you know a lot of people define success by money that's not always the case Right. And so that's a, it's a very good point because some people find success. I, I have a friend who's an artist who's a successful artist from a financial standpoint. And he turned to me the other week and he said, you know, I might just move to Europe and just close myself off and just paint because that's all I want to I do. I don't, I don't want the money. Right. So to him, that's what success would be. And actually, one of my I'm not a very big fortune cookie fan in terms of the, the quotes they have on there. What about the cookies? The cookies I like. Okay. Co- cookies are yeah. absolutely, I mean, I'll be honest with you, pretty much any type of cookie I'm in. But I do have one fortune cookie quote that I stuck to my computer screen and it says success is an accumulation of successful days right and I love that because it it enables people to look and say hey whatever happened yesterday that's fine I'm gonna wake up this morning and for me personally I I meditate for 10 minutes in the morning just to clear my thoughts and get started on an even keel not a long crazy meditation but it helps me just avoid that thought spiral of negativity right everyone has it it's a human it's a human condition And so if you have the ability to approach every day and say, hey, I'm going to be the best Josh I can be today. You know, every interaction that I have, I'm going to make meaningful. I'm going to connect with people. That's what's what fulfillment really comes from. And so if you're able to do that, so to me, that's what success kind of is. is, is it's, It's not only monetary and it's not only financial. Now, yes, do you need to be able to pay your bills? And if you like going on vacation and you need to be able to afford that or you want to have a family and that costs money, yes, that relates to it. But to me, you need to have balance, right? You need to make equal time for your work, for your friends, for your family, for your hobbies. And without that, you can become unbalanced. And then that fulfillment and that success is pretty unattainable. Well, that's a phenomenal outlook on life. Do you have any outlook on the marketplace that you want to share? Yes, I do. Um, I think that we're- I had a feeling you might. Yeah. We're at a a very interesting place on the market. it's no secret that we've reached a peak in the market in terms of pricing. Uh, and you're already seeing that just as it relates to concessions that landlords are offering. The prices aren't coming down yet, but the the free rent packages and the, the tenant improvement allowance packages are just absolutely through the roof. Uh, I just finished a renewal for a client full floor on Fifth Avenue. 
uh, very strong company. And on a 10-year lease, we got 12 months of free rent. It's tremendous. It's a 10% discount. Right? Absolutely. Additionally, we also got him a full another year's worth of money to refurbish his space. And if he didn't use it, he could convert it to free rent. Now, this is a unique circumstance. This doesn't happen every time. But the point is that the landlord was reaching because he didn't want to lose the tenant. And so what I think you're seeing is that a lot of tenants are what we call buying up the rent. So they need to show a higher face rent, so they're giving a lot more free rent. To me, that's an indication that we're reaching the peak of the market. Also, what people tend to ignore is the fact that companies can only survive by paying a certain percentage of their income on rent. So rents cannot go up indefinitely. It's not possible. And we've reached a point where it's becoming unaffordable for a lot of companies to have office space in Manhattan. I mean, if you look at the super top end of the market with Hudson Yards and all these kind of things, those deals are happening, but that's really not even 10% of the market, right? You're talking about an office space market of 550 million square feet in New York, and you're talking about the bulk of the leasing happens, you know, 60% of the leasing happens between five and 20,000 square feet, right? And so the big news that you hear in all the Facebook deals and the Apple deals and the Amazon deals, while it's great news, it's not really reflective of the actual market in my in my experience. Uh, what I will say, though, is the whole WeWork effect has had a dramatic uh, impact on the market, but not in the way that most people are think that I'm going to say. WeWork is the largest occupier of office space in Manhattan right now, which is a complete travesty given the fact that they don't actually occupy any space, right? They are they lease the space and then they put it back on the market. So what I, I call it phantom leasing, right? Where it's nothing actually leaving the market. So what happened is in the last three years when they've really ramped up their leasing, they've gobbled up a lot of those smaller floor plates. And so that created a significant decrease in supply, which increased the prices, obviously, basic economics. What we're going to see in the next probably 12 to 24 months is a lot of those spaces coming back on the market. Is there a need for co-working space? Absolutely. Is there 25 million square feet worth of need in Manhattan? No. And if WeWork alone occupies 8 million square feet of the shared space, then they have about 20 competitors that occupy at least that, if not more, in, in, in combination, right? And so you're going to start seeing these spaces come back on the market. It will be a little bit slower because WeWork's new theory is they're going to create a service out of WeWork, which is they're going to default on their leases, and then they're going to pitch their services to landlords saying, hey, we'll run this space as a co-working space, which is a good theory. But the problem is there's not nearly enough demand to meet that supply. And so that's, those spaces are going to start coming back on the market, which I think will, will affect uh, prices softening. But I don't think it's going to be all at once. I think it will be it will trickle in. And obviously, the stock market will have an effect as well. Anything else you want to talk about? You know, for, for me, for me, it's it's been really nice to, to chat with you. I think it's been a nice opportunity for me to touch on a, a few different ways that I see brokerage. You know, one other thing that I think could be beneficial for people listening is just the concept that the human body is important to consider in general. And what I mean by this is brokerage, art, boxing, marketing, media, tech, these are all very high-stress environments. And it's important to understand that the body has physical reactions and responses to stress. It's an increased heart rate. It's shallower breathing. And what ends up happening is there's a decrease of flow to, of oxygen to the brain, which actually makes it more difficult to process and to be the best you that you can be. And so this is something that I practice with my guys every single week in, our, in a brokerage in the brokerage development program, where you do a short breathing exercise that can help bring your stress levels down and enable you to be your best self. It takes a total of about not about it takes a total of sixty three seconds where you breathe in for six seconds, you hold your breath for seven seconds, and then you breathe out for eight seconds. And if you do that three times in a row, yes, if you can do it for longer, great. But if you can do that alone for three times in a row, you'd be shocked and amazed about how your shoulders relax. You feel more comfortable in your skin. 
you don't feel as much pressure. And so that's something that I hope that everyone can maybe inculcate for themselves in, in, in having a little, more, a little bit more control when you have that anxiety coming on or when you have that stress coming on to know that you can affect that a little bit and have some somewhat control over that. Well, you showed me how to do it. We did it before this interview, and I think it's great advice. We always ask one piece of advice for real estate brokers, but let's make that the piece of advice. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Josh Berger, thank you for being on The Broker's Angle. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That wraps up our interview with Josh Berger. For more, visit brokersangle.com or follow us on social media at Broker's Angle. And please feel free to email us at angle at brokersangle.com.